Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts. We ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week is a spokesperson for the Council of Ex-Muslims. Mariam Namazi, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming. And for anyone who doesn't know, a lot of people will obviously will know who you are. But for people who don't, uh, tell us a little bit, just a little bit about your backstory and how have you come to be so passionate about the issues that you talk about that we'll get into. Well, I'm originally from Iran. And so I, uh, and I was raised as a Muslim, of course. And um, after the Iranian revolution, it became an Islamic state, even though the revolution was an Islamic. So we left the country. So I um, became involved in refugee rights issues, given my own experiences, of course, um, opposition to the Islamic state, uh, because it was just horrible you know, to live under it, and the results of it continues to today. And so that's what I've sort of been campaigning on, issues around Islam, Islamism, women's rights, secularism, and of course, refugee rights. And uh, I have so many questions to ask you, we both do, most of which I'm quite <laughs> reluctant to ask, because these are very difficult issues to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you just outline for us, first of all, one of the things I think is really important to demarcate is, the difference between Muslims as people, Islam as a religion, and Islamism as a more of a, you probably would say, political mm -hmm. ideology. So can you just explain to us and our viewers what are those things and how to separate them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite simple to separate them. I don't know why everybody has a difficult task doing it. And I think if you compare it with the Christian right, because a lot of progressive people will be against the church, for example, against its laws regarding women, for example, um, the Christian rights, assault on abortion rights, reproductive rights, women's rights, for example, in the U.S or in Poland. Uh, and then there's Christianity, which a lot of free thinkers will make fun of Christianity, will make fun of Jesus, for example. You have comedy shows with Jesus in a nappy. And then you've got Christians. And you can make fun of uh, Christianity and make fun of the Christian right, oppose the Christian right, and nobody says you're attacking Christians, you know, mm. or you're bigoted against Christians. It's the exact same thing. I don't know why it's so difficult to understand. You know, we come from Muslim backgrounds. A lot of our family members are still Muslims. So and, and don't you know, racists can't tell any one of us apart anyway. So if you think that, you know, for us, we think, oh, we're safe because they're only going to attack the Muslims. I mean, they attack Sikhs thinking they're Muslims. They can't tell anyone from anyone, you know. So in, in, we don't want to be inciting racism. Racism affects ex-Muslims, too. It affects our families, too. But it's a question of saying, look, we're, we're, we're free thinkers. Uh, we want to criticize the Islamic right, like the Christian right. Uh, we want to uh, be able to criticize Islam as a ridiculous idea, as all religions are. Uh, but that's not the same as attacking Muslims. That's not the same as attacking people. And I think it, you know, it's something that's conflated as a way really of silencing criticism. I mean, that's what's happened. And the Islamic movement is doing that, you know, trying to silence criticism. It's a way of imposing blasphemy laws here in Europe where blasphemy laws don't exist. So in Iran, nobody will accuse you of Islamophobia or bigotry against Muslims. They'll call you an apostate, a blasphemer, and you go to prison and you get the death penalty for it. Here, they use terms like Islamophobia um, as, as, and, and bigotry and racism as a way of imposing those laws, uh, you know, de facto rather than 
in the law. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, but here's where the difficulty comes in because I understand I, both of us are non-believers and yeah. we also think that there's a lot of problems with all religions. Uh, maybe Islam in, in particular has certain challenges as well. But if one of us was to say what you've just said, well, that's it. We're Islamophobic, we're racist, we're bigoted. And, uh, and, that, and that is difficult, isn't it? Well, I mean, we get accused of that too. So it's, it's people who are from well, You Muslim get accused of being Islamophobic? Of course. Yeah, of, of being uh, Uncle Tom's, of being coconuts, of being um, a native informants, you know, of, mm. of promoting a neo-colonial agenda. These are things they say to us as well. And I think that, you know, it's good that people are concerned about racism. That's thanks to a huge anti-racist movement that has made it difficult to be racist and bigoted. That's something positive. And I think it's nice that people are concerned about racism. And that's a great thing, you know. But I think it's important to say that, you know, great that we're concerned with racism, but cr criticizing the religious right or criticizing bad ideas has nothing to do with racism. And I do understand that you have a far right that is very savvy, like the Islamists are very savvy. They use human rights language. They even use anti-racist language as a way of covering themselves, you know. So you'll have the EDL or Tommy Robinson or Britain First and these sort of groups saying, we're not attacking Muslims, we're anti-Islam and we're anti-Islamism using this sort of language as well. But really, you can see that their politics are focused on it. migrants, on Muslims, on deportations, on keeping people out, on never recognizing people of different backgrounds as citizens and equal citizens. You know, they're always the other. They're, they never really belong, according to them. Uh, the, the proper Europe is a white Christian Europe, according to them. So you can see how people can get confused because you do have the far right using similar language. But I think, you know, again, I think it's very simple. It's like I say I'm a women's rights campaigner. George Bush said he attacked Iraq for women's rights. Well, who do you believe? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's simple. If, if someone's actually killing women and saying he, they're protecting them, if they're throwing bombs on countries and saying it's for human rights, well, then I think your brain can work a little bit and say, well, they're, they're pretending in the same way that the Islamists say Islam is a religion of peace while they're beheading you, you know. So I think you can tell the difference. And I think it's just asking people to use their critical faculties, you know. When it comes to Islam, it seems as if everybody has a lobotomy, you know. The same uh, principles and ethics we would use on other issues. Somehow when it comes to Islam, we're, we're incapable of doing it. Well, before Francis jump in, let, let me just finish this line of questioning. Um, he never lets me talk. Yes. <laughs> it's better for everybody that way. <laughs> uh, very Russian of you. <laughs> yes, I talk. <laughs> I ask questions. You listen. <laughs> uh, just give me one more. And then cool, I'll, I'll go um, you mentioned this phrase, Islam is a, is a religion of peace. Yeah. Uh, and whenever there's a terrorist attack yeah. uh, by Islamists and jihadis in this country or anywhere else in Europe, that seems to always be the line. Islam is a religion of peace. You can't talk about it. Even open-minded people like us who want to understand what, where different people are coming from and are not blaming whole groups of people for certain things, you, you can't say that. Uh, particularly as a white person, you can't say that. But even as you said yourself, as someone who's from Iran, from, was brought up as a Muslim, you know, saying Islam is not a religion of peace, which I imagine you believe, um, 
it's impossible. So can you just talk to us about why you don't think Islam is a religion of peace? Yeah, I mean, I don't think any religion is a religion mm. of peace. I mean, religion is based on, you know, murdering anyone who is a her heretic, an apostate. You know, you've got the Spanish Inquisitions. You, we've got historical examples. We've got present-day examples. Uh, and the Islamic movement has power in many countries. They're actually crucifying people in the street, hanging people off of cranes for apostasy, for blasphemy, for being gay. They're stoning people to death in the street. So, you know, it's not a hypothetical uh, discussion to say that Islam or any religion is not peaceful. I think religion actually is, uh, you know, the antithesis of peace and justice. And uh, in fact, you know, it, it's funny because they always talk about religious morality, but really it's immorality from an ethical point of view. You know, so many of, you know, just to give you an example, in Islam, it's immoral to have sex outside of marriage. So you have sex with someone you love, but it's perfectly fine to have child marriage, which is pedophilia and child rape. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not possible possible to hold hands with your partner, someone you love on the street, because that's considered sexual mixing. But it's perfectly fine to specify the size of stone to stone someone to death for, ha for having an adulterous relationship or for um, being a homosexual. It's perfectly fine to throw someone off a building because they're gay. But, uh, you know, it's haram to eat during Ramadan. I mean, it's just pr you know, the, the unethical nature of all religious precepts, I think it's clear. I mean, I, I, I think the problem is because religion is treated with such kid gloves and there's so much respect for something that is so not worthy of any respect, you know. And so I, I know you don't look very happy. Sorry. No, 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 <laughs> no. That's his face. No, that's it. Hey, that's my face. Because I, I get that a lot when I'm speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like Francis it. probably agrees with you even more than I do. Uh, okay, so, yeah. so I think yeah. So saying Islam is a religion of peace is just you know it's nonsense. It's not true by any measure. You just have to you know. Yeah, they'll say, and, and let me say this, my dad, who's a Muslim, is the loveliest, kindest person in the world. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Uh, so, again, I'm not saying that Muslims are like that uh, or Christians are like what the Bible says or Jews are like what the Torah says. You know, in, in the Torah, for example, men pray thanking God that they weren't born women. You know, there's so many examples of that in all religions. So, I, because I think people are better than their religions because people change according and adapt according to the age that they live in. And books really remain the same. And that's why interpretation is such a big thing because people do interpret things the way they want. But I think I Islam is not at all peaceful. And I understand why people say it because they don't want Muslims to be targeted and rightfully so. You know, now in Sri Lanka, after the attack on the church, Muslims are being dragged out of their homes. Their shops are being burned down. They haven't done anything, you know. And we've got lots of ex-Muslims who've had to flee the city because, of course, they're also considered Muslims and they've lost their homes. They're homeless. So, again, you, you can understand why people say that. But I think that's going about it the wrong way because, you know, everybody knows that's not true. And you're just helping to not discuss the truth. And you're sort of making Muslims a target by not saying the truth about things, you know. And I think that's where we need to be very clear. Target beliefs, target religious right movements, never ever is targeting people permissible in any circumstance. I mean, I think that's a very, very important and powerful message because... You do see it a lot of, you know, people targeting individual people. Mm. You know, you know, you get horrible stories about hijabs getting ripped off yeah. people. And it, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. The, the words that I hear bandied about all the time and that I hear and that we've used already in this interview is Islamophobia. And 
I don't even know what that means. Could you clarify for myself and for the listeners what is what 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 is the meaning of the word and what is what do we how is it used? And sometimes I see in order to shut down debate and conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big problem with this word. And the problem is that, one, it's become mainstream. So it's adopted by the UN. It's adopted by various, uh, you know, in in British, now the British uh, government has adopted it and lots of parties are adopting it. And um, there's an all-parliamentary group that's uh, also put forward this word, this term, and explained it. And basically... It implies that there's it's bigotry against Muslims, but it's you know there's a problem because it sort of uses the word Islam, which is a religion, rather than saying Muslim phobia. I would be perfectly happy with that term, like xenophobia, which is a phobia against foreigners, like homophobia, a phobia against gay people. These are discrimination and bigotry against people, gay people, migrants, Muslims. But Islamophobia is Islam is an idea and. It's fine if people have a phobia of it. You know, I have a phobia about fascism. Uh, you know, I don't like it, and I, I'll stand up against it wherever I can. It's the same with religion for me. I do have a phobia, a dislike uh, of religions as well. You know, and so to compare that with bigotry against people is really po- problematic. Um, and it's um, it's something that is being used as a way of somehow conflating criticism of Islam, criticizing. Uh, Islamism with an attack on Muslims. And and so it becomes impossible to really say anything uh, for a lot of people. I uh, did a stint of work when I was a supply teacher and I worked in an Islamic primary school in South London. And uh, in the afternoon, the children had uh, Islamic studies, as it was called, mm-hmm. and they sat down. And these were children in year two. You so didn't you... teach that, did you? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't. I can just see you that reading That would have been really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right, and at this point, and this is, no, and it sounds awful in my accent as well. But, <laughs> however, uh, I do have a racist voice, I realise that. <laughs> but um, there was one point because I sat in and I had to observe it and all the rest of it and then I marked books at the back and I remember the imam sat down with his children who were six and seven years old and was talking about Jesus and he said um, explained that the reason that Jesus was murdered was because the Jews were jealous of him Mm -hmm. and he repeated the Jews four or five times Mm -hmm. and at this point I was sitting there going at what point does this start to creep into indoctrination these children have no idea of Judaism or what, what a Jewish person is. And repeating the words, you know, the Jews killed him, that, you know, and the Jews because they were jealous of him. And I'm just there, and I, I got incredibly uncomfortable at that point that you've got these children who are completely innocent and repeating the word Jews constantly and saying that they're the reason that Jesus died. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the basis of anti-Semitism as well, isn't it? I mean, mm. even um, anti, not just Islamic anti-Semitism, but Christian anti-Semitism too. And I think, again, this is why it's really important that we don't have religion in schools. I think religion is fine as we teach history or, you know, uh, in the sense of talking about different religions so people know you know, that there are different religions in the world, but that there are also people who are atheists and humanists and free thinkers. And and not as a form of indoctrination, but historically what religions have done, because they've done a lot of bad shit in the world, mm. you know. And it would be good for kids to know that rather than always having this 
religion is this, religion is all lovely and cuddly, whilst also giving really sinister messages about the religion that you don't like, you know, or you want your the kids to move away from. And I think it does lead to indoctrination. I mean, even in Christian schools, which are not as bad as Islamic schools today, right? Mm. You do have this concept of heaven and hell, and it does instill fear in children. You know, it's quite abusive when you, the psychological abuse of it is quite harsh, especially if, if kids believe it and it scares them. And I've met lots of ki- you know, adults who are really frightened of these concepts when they were children, and it can be such a scary thing. So I think it's, it's good for kids to learn about things, but not in a way that indoctrinates them. Having an imam come to school is really, I think, you know, it's, it's dangerous for, for children. And uh, it's, um, it is because they do have this idea of indoctrination in mind. I don't know if you saw, I, I wish I had the details of it, but there was this, um, I think I'm going to say in Egypt, there was this, uh, the Saudi government had given a lot of money uh, for a, sort of a theological uh, department at this university. And I was reading how the professor who was chair of that department had been fired because the Saudi, uh, uh, one of the representatives of the Saudi government was wanting to see his notes and wanted him to say things like Islam is a better religion than the other religions. And he was angry that he was also teaching other religions and not just Islam. So it does, you know, there is a lot of indoctrination and this idea of indoctrination and trying to veer people to thinking Islam is the best religion. And what does that come with? You know, the fact that girls and boys need to be separate, girls need to be modest and be covered up. Uh, you know, they shouldn't sing, their voices shouldn't be too loud, they shouldn't laugh out loud, they shouldn't be in sports. That's all the things that it comes with. And imagine saying this to little kids, you know. You heard the Jewish sermon, but there's all these other sermons as well about girls and modesty and, um, you know, superiority of boys, which is so detrimental to child development. And where do you actually stand on the hijab? Do you... And- at what point do you think, because I taught in a primary school and you'd see little girls of the age of five, six years old and they'd be wearing them, sometimes even younger. Yeah. Where, would, where do you stand on it? Do you, do you agree with it? Do you disagree and why? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, five or six-year-olds, it even goes against Islamic teachings because you're not supposed to wear the veil until you're a woman and that's after puberty, right? So, um, like in Iran, for example, it's when you start going to school at the age of seven. I know a lot of families living in the West, they veil their kids younger because they know if they let them not be veiled until they're seven or eight, they're not going to want to wear it anymore because you do really feel the restriction of it. And uh, so I think part of it is just trying to get them used to it, Uh, like caging a bird, you know, you get used to it and then it becomes natural for you and you kind of feel naked if you don't go out, if you go out with it. So I think but on the veil, I think it's there's no yes, right or wrong answer in the sense that I think it's more complex for me. For me, I think um, child veiling is a form of child abuse because the veil represents, uh, basically tells a girl that her body is something that causes 
fit in our chaos in society if it's not covered up. So um, I had someone in a debate in Britain tell me, an imam say that if we don't have gender segregation, which again the veil is a symbol of, it segregates you from men. If you don't have gender segregation, it's going to lead to adultery and sex and we're going to have to stone people. So isn't it better that we have gender <laughs> segregation and we veil women? So this is the, the perverted ethical, you know, unethical really mindset of a religion and obsessed with women's bodies, obsessed with girls' bodies. So I do think with ch girls, it's so unethical because they don't get sunlight in their hair. What it means is they have to be separate from boys, so you can't be friends with boys anymore. You can't swim. You can't dance. Uh, you know, you have to sit at the back of the classroom. That's all what it represents. So it affects child development. And what does it tell a girl growing up? That, you know, your body is so disgusting. That's why we all have such huge body image problems, you know. I mean, women everywhere do. Mm. But we especially, you know, our bodies are filthy, you know, according to how we've been raised, you know. Which is why I did nude protest as well, because it was so difficult for me, but also a way of just saying I'm not going to allow that to, to take hold. But when it comes to adult women, I think, you know, if a woman wants to wear a veil, well, you know, she has a right to wear a veil. And I use the term right, um, you know, carefully because rights are meant to liberate you, not to oppress you. But I think that people, if they want to wear it, they can as adults. Uh, but child veiling is child abuse. And I think if you represent a secular state, like as a teacher or if you're a judge, then you shouldn't be wearing religious symbols, you know. So I have, but on the borka, I think it should be banned, basically, because I do think it's a body bag for women. And it's just so, I mean, people who defend it should actually walk in it for, for half an hour to see how it feels. It is like being buried alive, in my opinion. Mm. Right. Well, and the thing you say about people's rights as well, I mean, from what I know, a lot of women are put in a position where they, they're not forced to, but, you know, they're very strongly encouraged to wear the veil or the burqa because male relatives insist on it or whatever. That's not really a right that someone's exercising, is it? That's a form of compulsion being used. Coercion as well. Coercion. Yeah, definitely. I think... You know, this whole idea of saying it's a right and a choice is um, it, it's it's you, the fact that you've submitted to something doesn't make it a right and choice. Mm. You know, and I think that's the distinction. Y yeah, you, you can submit to a lot of things, uh, even though you you might not want to. But that's just the way things are meant to be. And you have to do them sort of thing. And there's so much pressure. You know, I mean, if you like talk to a lot of uh, ex-Muslims, um, you know, who Obviously, they look Muslim, they live in Muslim areas, and, you know, they're not fasting. The pressure, you know, you're not fasting, oh my, you know, the, the sort of, there's this constant pressure, so you end up then hiding if you're eating, or you pretend that you are, you know, so, yeah, you can say they've chosen not to fast, but it's not that easy when you are in that situation. At the veil also, you know, people will say it's a choice, but I'd ask those same women, if you want to remove that veil today, would you be able to do it? And most likely, no. You know, most likely it would be very, very difficult to remove the veil. Uh, near impossible. You would, And we've had members who've done it. You lose everything in many instances. Your family, your friends, you know, and everyone that you knew. Um, and so it's, it's you know, 
If, it doesn't if you, sound like a right. No, exactly. No. If you have a right to something, you should have a right to go in and out of it mm. when you choose. If you have a right to religion, you should have a right to leave religion. When it's not that simple, then there's a problem, isn't there? You mm. know. And I think with the veil, that's exactly the case. And, and it just, I find it incredible that you just referred to yourself as an ex-Muslim. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. I would never refer to myself as an ex-Catholic. I'd just go, yeah. I'm an atheist and I don't believe it anymore. And it was as simple as that. But it... It doesn't sound as simple as that yeah, in Islam. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the whole, to be honest, I don't even like the ex-Muslim term myself. And uh, I, th- I, I also thought I was an atheist. I was an atheist long before I was an ex-Muslim. Mm. But I think the term is really important for us because it's a way of uh, challenging many ideas. One, the idea that, you know, Muslims uh, are a homogenous community and everybody agrees with ISIS and the Islamic State and um, of Iran and Saudi Arabia or the, the Muslim Council of Britain or the local imam. No, it's, it's also like any group of people. There's so many differences of opinion in there. There are feminists in there. There are socialists in there. There are atheists in there. So saying ex-Muslim sort of breaks that idea that minorities are homogenous and dissent exists in our communities and we have a right to speak out and criticize ideas that we think are misogynist and homophobic and inhuman. And also it's, you know, um, because um, it's so difficult to criticize Islam or to leave Islam, of course, you know, in, I don't know, 13 countries, you can be executed for blasphemy. In 11, you can be executed for being an apostate. Uh, given that situation, it's important to say we're ex-Muslims, we're apostates, because it's a way of challenging it and saying that, you know, you say we don't exist or you try to silence us when you do find out that we exist. So this is a way of us coming out publicly and saying we exist. And the public renunciation is a form of resistance as well, you know. So from that situation, it's important. But for me, you know, I come from an Iranian background where there is quite a large anti-Islamic backlash in Iran. I mean, it's, you know, the mullahs are despised, you know. I mean, there was a funny story where, uh, you know, because our parliament is full of mullahs, right, because it's an Islamic state. Mm -hmm. And he came late to the parliamentary session and it was televised. And he was saying that he couldn't get a cab dressed up as a mullah. So he had to go home and wear street clothes, like a normal trousers and a shirt before a taxi would pick him up Mm -hmm. to take him Mm -hmm. to the um, assembly. You know, so there is that backlash. So for me, it was quite normal to say ex-Muslim atheist. But when I started the Council of Ex-Muslims in Britain, we couldn't find one non-Iranian, you know, to do it, not one. And of course, it's changed. The world has changed so much now in because of social media. It's changed as if it's been 100 years, you know, that everybody calls themselves ex-Muslims. There are so many ex-Muslims now, so many groups, you can't even tell who's, you know, where it started or when it started. Uh, but that surprised me that there was so much fear uh, for people who were l- born and raised in Britain. That really shocked me because it was so easy for us from coming from Iran, you know. Uh, Constant, can I ask one question? And then, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then this is a story uh, that happened at my school uh, before I joined. And I remember my colleague telling me about it and I found it profoundly shocking. It's a very, very distressing story. Um, so I used to work in a primary school in East London. And one of the girls that we was at my school, she used to get the imam to come and teach her and teach her Arabic and Islamic studies uh, one-to-one. And it turned out that the eventually that the imam was abusing her. Yeah. And so the mum came in and the school had to talk to her and had to persuade her 
to Not report him. Oh, okay. Because other because she didn't want to do it because in one in one sense it, she would be ostracized from her community, and also the girl because she's had some form of sexual contact would be deemed to be impure, right? And would therefore be again ostracized from the community. And I remember hearing that story. I just, I just, I don't think I've ever felt that sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it happens a lot. I mean, it happens in the Christian church as well, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so well known, and I think it's actually maybe even more pervasive, I would think, yeah. um, you know, in Islamic schools and mosques where corporal punishment is norm, sexual violence, sexual abuse. I mean, we have lots and lots of ex-Muslims who've been through things like that, you know. And again, the shame, you know, that's the, there is, I mean, I think it, it's also true for those who've been abused in the church as well. There is a lot of shame and stigma, especially when it happens to you when you're young. You wonder, you know, the shame of it, was I responsible? Whereas, of course, there's no way a child is ever, anyone's responsible for rape or sexual abuse, let alone a child. Um, but I think there is that stigma, like you say, and this fact that if you come out, it costs you so much, mm. you know. Uh, and unfortunately, I think, I don't know, there's this thing where everybody's so worried about what everybody else says and what everybody thinks. And there is a lot of times, you know, parents that shun their children. Um, I wonder if they would do that if they lived outside of that community where they weren't so worried about what people would say and do, you know. And so much of it is that pressure. So you're not just thinking about your daughter. You're thinking, what will people say? What would they say about her? What will they say about us? Um, and more likely, there'll be more pressure on them than on the mullah or imam or whoever. Mm. Yeah. I, I wanted to uh, go back a little bit to uh, what you, you, you criticize all religion, which I totally understand. Mm. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the Inquisition or whatever it might be. And there's no question that, for example, at the time of the Inquisition, the, the Islamic world was far more developed and progressive in many ways. Well, uh, so they say, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but certainly if you look in terms of mathematics yeah, joking, and architecture yeah. and uh, yeah. scientific development, mm -hmm. and in some ways even tolerance of non-believers, mm -hmm. it was, you could argue was more, it was more tolerant than the Christian world. Mm -hmm. So certainly in that time, you could say quite credibly that Christians were being barbaric towards mm. heretics, etc. And is it unfair to say that now, in the times that we live in now, mm. Islam has the lead, if you like, in mm. terms of, uh, you know, violence, uh, terrorism, uh, oppression of women, mm. treatment of minorities, etc. Is it not the case that right now, in this moment in time, mm. Islam is more... Uh, extreme in, in those things, mm. in terms of practice. Maybe mm. in the books it's all the same, but in terms of practice. But, you know, for me, I think, I, I would say, well, I focus on Islam, so mm. for me, I think it is a major threat to world peace and rights and so on and so forth. But I do think that it's, uh, that all religions are capable of it, and I do think that if they don't do it, it's because they don't have the access to power that Islamic states do. Um, but the minute they do, they, they will do the same. I mean, if you look at, for example, the white nationalists, they, uh, uh, their politics is based on the Bible, for example. 
uh, and uh, you know, in the U.S., they've killed more people than the Islamists have, uh, and uh, uh, we're seeing a rise of uh, white supremacists here in Europe as well. And look at the U.S. now; they're, they've got states that are outlawing abortion or making abortion really difficult. So, the more power they have, you do see the effects on women's rights, on on human rights, on gay rights, um, and you know, and again in places in Africa, for example, where children who are a bit disobedient are considered witches and then they're thrown out or they're made to eat pieces of their own flesh. I mean, these are things that the church there, for in Nigeria, for example, encourages. So I do think that a nice, cuddly religion is one that has no power and they're forced to, you know, do soup kitchens and help the homeless. And even then, their sinister messages are always there, you know. You, you need to come to church and then we'll give you some food to eat, you know. Come, come for the prayer session and then we'll give you a bed. There's always that sort of attempts to indoctrinate vulnerable people, which makes it even more outrageous, you know, because it's people at their lowest point that they're, um, they're trying to help, you know. So... I think with Islam, we're seeing the true face of religion because it's got the power to do, um, to put its, you know, uh, what it practice where its thoughts are. What about you know? somewhere like the UK, for example? Yeah. You, I think it's reasonable to argue Islam isn't the dominant religion of the UK. Yeah, we have, we do have terrorist attacks here and things like that yeah. that we don't have from. Jews or Christians sure, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and this is why I said we had lots of questions that I, we were kind of reluctant to ask because it's a very difficult thing. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that you know, all Muslims are terrorists or whatever. But, of course. But if you look up on the news and you see a terrorist attack in this country with a suicide bomber, you kind of know where that's coming from. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. 100% I agree. But uh, I think, for example, um, the Jewish settlers in Palestinian territories, they are, honestly, they are the Jewish right, you know. Uh, and uh, the Christian right that, for example, killed the MP here in Britain. Joe Cox. Yeah, Joe yeah. Cox. Mm. Or, uh, for example, attacked the mosques in New Zealand. Mm. You know, uh, you've got, you know, the Buddhist right. The Buddhists are supposedly the loveliest, kindest people, but they are massacring Muslims in um, Myanmar mm. and um, uh, Sri Lanka. Yeah, or, or now uh, look at what's happening in Sri Lanka after the attack on the uh, churches. Muslims, I, I don't know if you've seen some of the videos, they are so heartbreaking of just Muslims who are going about their business, being dragged into the streets, being attacked by mobs, and they're Buddhists who are doing it, you know, uh, a Buddhist majority. Um, and also uh, in India, for example, we've seen the rise of the Hindu right. You know how many people, how many Muslims have been killed in India uh, for eating beef or for selling beef because the cow is sacred in India? I mean, it's. Uh, I was looking at a map with all these dots of people who've been killed. It's a huge number. We don't even hear about it. You know, and you've got Hindu right uh, beating uh, couples who are celebrating Valentine's Day in India. I mean, India is an old secular state, you know. So these are things that we're seeing a rise of that weren't there 30, 40 years ago. You know, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, it was not like that 40 years ago either. You know, if you look at pictures of our countries, it was completely different. So in 40 years, look what they've done. You know, they have made life hell for so many people. Give the Hindu right 40 years, give the Christian right 40 years, give the Jewish right 40 years. It's going to, they can do this exact same things. And I think that's why... 
it's important to focus on Islam, of course, but also not to forget that the religious right, if they have power, um, it can be really, really bleak for people, um, you know, everywhere. So it's not just Islam and Islamism that's the mm. problem. One thing that has always baffled me about every religion, practically, is, is why it's so obsessed with, with, with homosexuality. Yeah. I mean, so what? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. And it seems to be every religion as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think, um, you know, I don't know. Obviously, religion has this thing of wanting to make everything uniform, of course. But I think it also comes back, I mean, that's my take on it, it might be totally crazy, comes back to the obsession on women uh, because, you know, they're concerned that they might be attracted to another man and, well, men you can't veil. And that's why men have to have beards and they have to be unkempt so you don't mistake them for a girl and have sex with them. You're doing great on that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, well, you've got the beard. Yeah, exactly. So, so you're safe, you know. <laughs> and that's why, like, the Taliban would actually um, uh, arrest people and attack them for not... They would measure your beard on the streets. They had a cup where they would measure it. And even donkeys had to wear nappies so that in case you see the balls and get all excited. I, it's like... Really? I'm saying... Religion is fucked up. <laughs> and the fact that anyone makes excuses for it and gives it respect, I mean, I think it's worthy of only of disrespect, honestly. And the fact that, you know, it's just when you hear these things and you think, my goodness, we're living in the 21st century. And these things actually, you know, these are people's beliefs. And it's fine. Believe what you want. You have a right to it. But, you know, the problem is if it's in the educational system, if it's in the law, if it's in the state then it makes lives really difficult for so many people. The one thing that I find is that when we talk about these subjects, I'll be honest with you, I'm sweating more than I would do at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> My back drenched. But here's the thing, you know, we talk about it. This, this is an important conversation. It needs to be discussed. It needs to be discussed openly, rationally, calmly. Yeah. The problem is, is we don't have these conversations because we're terrified. Right, yeah. because part of me, you know, when we where I grew up, I was in the eighties uh, and nineties. I remember Salman Rushdie. I remember the satanic verses. I remember the fatwa that was put up against him, and then you know the you know the, the extremists and all the rest of it. But also as well, you know, because we don't talk about it, again, it means that the Tommy Robinsons of the world yeah. and the far right go, exactly. okay, I can exploit this, right. and because they're savvy, they go, well, no one's talking about it. Yeah, I mean, that pisses me off, though, to be honest, because the, 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 when they say no one's talking about it, we're, we fled our countries because we're talking about it. People are getting killed and arrested every day in all of our countries in the Middle East and North Africa because they're talking about it, because they're resisting. Very often women are the front lines of it. And then, you know, they come and say we're the only ones talking about it. No, you're not. You're, you know... It's this, first of all, that's a big lie in and of itself because, you know, we've had the Council of Ex-Muslims, we've had One Law for All, um, we have um, the movement for unveiling in Iran, we've got the movement in Algeria against Sharia courts, we've got the demand for secularism in Turkey by women's rights activists, by other activists there. You just name it. You've got the uh, fastifying movement mm -hmm. in Morocco, in Algeria. Uh, you know, young people coming out and smoking in the streets and being arrested and being beaten, but saying, we have a, you, you fast if you want, but we have a right not to fast if we don't want. People have been doing that 
the, you've got all these refugees fleeing. Most of them are coming from Islamic states. Most of them are coming from Islamic states. Why do you think they're fleeing? Because they, the, because you know, when you have a theocracy, everything you do becomes a challenge to that state. How you dress, what music you listen to, who you have sex with, all of that becomes political acts of defiance, you know. And, and so all these people are, are having a say. They're voting with their feet. They're, they're resisting even by doing personal things that, you know, they deserve to do as human beings living in the 21st century. And then Tommy Robinson comes and says they're the only ones talking about it. Well, here's the thing with Tommy Robinson, right? We get a lot of criticisms because lots of people want us to interview him. Under this interview right now, people are putting comments as they watch. They're going, ah, whatever. But one thing that Tommy Robinson fans and supporters would say, I think, accurately, is the one issue that he did talk about that a lot of people didn't want to raise is the grooming gangs. In this That's country. not true. You know how many women's rights groups have been working on that? Mm. You know, on honor crimes, on, on FGM, on forced marriages. This is a woman's rights issue. Who the fuck is Tommy Robinson? I'm sorry. What, what defense of women's rights has he done? He's using the grooming gangs in order to sort of say that, you know, he's the only one speaking about it. And then he's done things that could have jeopardized the court case, you know. No, but before that, so I, my understanding... But it's not true, right, well, Hold on. Yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah. But let me just put this counterpoint yeah. to you, right? Because in preparing for this for our interview, I just wanted to kind of understand the history yeah. of it. So yeah. my understanding, and this could be completely wrong, but you tell me what you think, yeah. is that he started the EDL because uh, a cousin of his or something like that was raped, oh something like this, right? And the, the argument goes... Was as, raped by a Muslim. Uh, as I understand it, yeah. Okay. Um, is that true? Because so much of what he says isn't true, so it's hard that's to... That's my understanding. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, so, and in confronting that fact in mm. Luton, uh, what he found was there were lots of these stories of young white girls mm. uh, who'd been raped by Muslims. And in doing so, he then discovered that this was happening around the country, which he says is why he started the EDL okay. and why they were protesting about this. Mm. Uh, and when we say, well, no one is talking about this, I take your point mm. that there are lots of people who were talking about this, uh, but maybe not having their voices yeah. heard. But he was the one person that... There's two Because you see, here. the issues that you talk... And let me, let, yeah. I just want to lay it out. And yeah, yeah, you yeah. have plenty yeah, of opportunity yeah, yeah. to say yeah. what you want. Uh, an ordinary working class person... Uh, a British person, British-born mm. white person mm. in Oxford or in Rotherham or in Luton. Mm. They don't care. Let's be honest. They don't care about what's happening in Iran. They don't care about what's happening in Saudi Arabia. They care about what's happening in their community, right? So they might say uh, that Tommy Robinson, for all his faults, mm -hmm. was the one person speaking up for their daughters. Okay. Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't know you were going to ask this because I would have done more research okay. on this specific thing because we've done a report on the EDL and nowhere in its founding did it talk about rape and mm. Rotherham and things. So I think this is sort of historical revision, okay. I would say. Okay. And I, I'm confident enough to say it because I know enough about them to know that this was never mentioned initially. But because it's got traction now, now the whole history of the EDL is based on this. Mm. But even if that's the case, and I, it's like outrageous and so sad if anyone is raped and his cousin was raped. I think that's such a tragedy. But again, you know, placing collective blame is what groups like Tommy Robinson and the EDL do. Because, for example, uh, I've had white people say, you fucking foreigner, get out of the country. And then if I start an organization that focuses on white people, it's not really addressing racism. Do you know what I mean? Because it's sort of like... Um, to, to address racism, 
not only white people are racist, first of all, there are lots of anti-racists who are white, mm. in the same way that there are lots of Muslims who are pro-women's rights, who are not raping girls. And it's not just a question of white girls being raped, there are non-white girls being raped. Why is that also mm. not an issue? That's mm. something we've been fighting for. You know, because they only see Britain as white and Christian, it's as if their only concern is for white white women and only white women who've been raped by Muslims, not by other, not by the priests. You know, they haven't started a campaign about pedophilia in the church, for example. I mean, if you're concerned about rape and child abuse and sexual abuse, it's something that is much more all-encompassing as well. But I agree, there has been this of course, a cover-up. We know that, mm. right? We know that now. The police don't want to talk about it. Even with FGM, you've got the police commissioner saying it's discriminatory to talk about this. It's targeting a community. Well, it's not discriminatory for the woman who's been mutilated. It's bloody good if you do something for her, right? So I do agree that there is this climate. But I also think that groups like Tommy Robinson's and all, they're not women's rights groups, you know. Uh, they're using these issues in order to further their cause. And what is their cause? Their cause is not human rights. It's not a defense of secularism. Because really, I think as a basis, religious and non-religious people need to agree that we need secular societies to protect both the religious and the non-religious. You know, so they're quite happy defending a Christian Europe, a Christian Britain. You know, uh, they have no problems with the church and its rulings on so many aspects of people's lives. Their focus is on Islam because they're anti-Muslim and they're anti-migrant. And I think that's what my problem is uh, with them. They're using this issue. Um, and, you know, like w what happened with the trial as well of the groomers, uh, you know, uh, what Tommy Robinson did could have jeopardized the case. And that's quite crucial, you know, because you want them to be tried. You want them behind bars. You want uh, the full force of the law against people like that. But it's not just concern. It shouldn't just be concern for white girls, for all mm. girls, you know, who yeah. are being raped and abused. But that, that, that was a it seems like that was a particular problem within one community, right? Uh, and I was going to ask you, do you, do you have no, any... No, because I'm... You, you, know, do, you don't agree? No, can you imagine how many uh, non-white girls that those people are raping? I would think a lot more because it's, mm. it's your property, you know. In fact, uh, the, the child marriages, the forced marriages, all of that is sexual violence against girls, mm. you know. But because it's their culture, it's fine. But our white girls, that's not our culture. So what you're saying so is a, a lot of those... Uh, the statistics we see about Muslim men raping white girls, you suspect that those men were raping lots of Muslim girls? Or not or I don't know, not necessarily those men. I don't know mm. because I don't know. The, yeah. But I'm saying the amount of rape and sexual violence that's happening to brown girls yeah. and black girls, uh, I can, I'm, I'm sure are really high as yeah. well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then there's so much rape and child abuse taking place. It's not only, that's just one aspect of sure, it. Do you know sure, what I mean? Of, yeah. of, absolutely. And, and that's the thing, if you're really concerned about women's rights, about girls' rights, um, you know, you would be a women's rights campaigner. You wouldn't just be focusing on, on that issue. That issue needs to be focused on, of course. You know, if people only focus on that issue, it's important to do it. So that's not my problem. I think the more people can highlight what's happening and protect girls, 
the more that should be done. Mm. But what I'm saying is that it, I, I would think it's historical revision for Tommy to say that the whole EDL started because of that. I think he's realized that that's good traction for him because, he, you know, he does change his things. He says he said the EDL, um, uh, you know, he, he left it. That's what he said when he went to the interview with Majid Nawaz. He left it because there were too many fascists and all coming in. But go and see his speech at a Pegida rally in Germany where he says, you know, this is this is what I was dreaming of. And uh, the EDL was came too soon and it was too early for people to get it but now you know now people are getting it you know so he, he like a good Islamist he also changes his speech for different audiences I think you know Islamists do that very well as well it's called double speak the far right do that brilliantly as well they're part of the same movement I think actually you know Islamism is a far-right movement as well. Uh, so I think you, you, need, you need to be careful. And this is the thing I was saying, that George Bush says he bombed Iraq for women's rights. Do we buy it? We, we don't just look at what people say. We look at what they do, how they do it, in what context they do it, to, to make up our minds about things, right? Um, so with Tommy Robinson, you know, what sort of work has he done in defense of women's rights? Um, you know, um, why is it it always ends up with Muslims being deported and, you know, less Muslim migration to this country? So it is a placing of collective blame. And I think that's bigotry, pure and simple, you know. I understand what you're saying. And the reason I brought up the grooming gangs yeah. is not because this is an issue that I personally want to focus on exclusively and I don't care about yeah. other things. The yeah, reason yeah, I yeah. brought it up is that that from what I understand mm. from doing the research that I've done and listening mm. is th the grooming gangs issue is the one issue that people see Tommy Robinson mm. as standing up for their community. But that like. was that's today that but before yeah. that it was him, you know, and, and this is the other thing, uh, this idea that he represents the working class. Well, look, a lot of working class people join trade unions, they join anti-racist movements, they join progressive uh, organizing, you know, to say that working class equates fascism is just another rewriting and revision of, of reality, you know. Of course, there are working class people who join the EDL. There are middle class people who join the EDL. There are elite people who are, you know, top, like, 1% of society who join and fund and support the EDL or Britain first. You know, they're getting a lot of money, including from the United States, Christian right groups. Mm. Uh, Stephen Bannon's come to Europe to organize their groups and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of international links, just like the Islamists have a lot of international links, founded by the Saudis, supported by the Iranian regime, trainings going on, they're doing the exact same thing. So, you know, the fact that it's then, you know, it, working class, you know, the working class is automatically fascist is not the case, in my opinion. And also the fact that uh, believing Tommy Robinson at his word, I think, is dangerous in the same way that I think when you have an imam coming into a school or the Muslim Council of Britain saying, you know, we believe in uh, women's choice. But meanwhile, to group of women, they're saying hijab is your obligation. You've got to you've got to be able to be savvy enough to see what they say, what they're actually doing. I think EDL politics is so um, divisive. It's so dangerous. And mainly because it sort of has this us and them mentality, which is exactly what the Islamists do. You know, they're always dividing people. They're the kuffar. They're the Muslims, you know. Uh, 
they're destroying our culture. They're destroying. They say the same things as well. You know, they both hate women. They're both homophobes. You know, fundamentally, their their um, you know their focus is just dehumanizing the other. And I think that's so dangerous because if you kind of say, look, the Muslims do this, we have to get them out of the country, you no longer see people as human beings anymore. You know, but they are. There's so many good Muslims. You know, uh, just like there's so many good white people. You know, not all white people are fascists, right? I mean, that's common sense. Mm. But the argument that the EDL has is that it's the Muslims. They're destroying our country. They're destroying our culture. It's th they're never citizens, no matter how many generations they've lived in this country. You know, so all of that is just so dangerous. And it doesn't really help girls and women. That's the point I'm trying to make. Mm. In the same way that the Islamists, by veiling and segregating, they're not protecting women. They say they're protecting women, but it's a lie. It's they do that to dupe people, and I think the EDL has the same sort of arguments. They say ch grooming because they know that's a concern for people, um, but it's to dupe people into bringing them into a politics of hate and of scaremongering and of othering, you know, the other, sort of dehumanizing the other. So it's dangerous, in my opinion. And I've got to say, I, I think the point that you made, and you made it brilliantly, and it's so powerful and it's so true and it's really, really important, and because we always get people commenting, why don't you interview Tommy, blah, blah, blah. And then the last comment is always about how I look fat. But there we go. <laughs> well, now you... I can, I can, I can add, add to this. Yeah, it's always that. Juan Francis, why are you so fat? Your chin, your moustache. Oh, come on, man. A lot of people actually have been saying you lost weight. Yeah. You've lost weight. Well, tell you... them uh, the TV brings 10 pounds Yeah, on that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to do that. I, I tell you, the body shaming is so bad on this. We had a, we had a rapper on called Zuby, who's a libertarian rapper, and he's yeah he he weight lifts and he's got these huge arms. Someone commented, "Look how good his arms are." You can you can see how good his arms are by comparing them to Francis and his pathetic lack of definition. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so, oh, so, so you know how women feel. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. women are always you know everything. I, I'm old. I'm fat. I'm ugly. Yeah. Uh, it's like, and then if you're younger, well, I've reached, you know, because ISIS used to kill women off after um, 40. Uh, because wow. they couldn't sell them as sex slaves, right? So I should have been killed like 13 years ago. I'm 53 now. And so the, the rape and the sex jokes and all have changed to you old hag. You, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing how it's still, you know, anti-woman, but it's depending on your age, it changes. Mm -hmm. So, so. Not that I'm happy that men also, <laughs> so, but it makes me feel a little like solidarity. You know? yeah. Solidarity between us. Yeah. Do you know th this? You should be ashamed of your body shaming. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I cried tears as I eat my chocolates. Right. But I think this conversation is it's just so Im important, and it needs to happen, and you know it's vital. But I could never imagine it happening on mainstream terrestrial TV like the BBC in mm. any great detail. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, just a few days ago, uh, one of um, my colleagues, Sadia Hamid, was supposed to be on BBC Women's Hour uh, to talk about Ramadan and how child fasting is child abuse. And, of course, like one hour before the show went live, they cancelled her uh, coming. And everybody on the show was fine with child fasting. And it's happened so many times. I was invited to the BBC uh, during a campaign. And this, you know, usually I'm like, okay, that happens. But honestly, after this happened, I just cried for an hour because it was so frustrating. This woman was being stoned to death in Iran, Sakinem Mohammad Yashiani, and we had a campaign in her defense. 
and the BBC had invited us, me to come and speak about our campaign. And there was uh, someone from Iran saying she needs to die. She's a you know murderer. And then there was a Sharia judge from Britain who said, well, stoning is good for society because it purifies it. And they didn't they didn't have me on. And I so thought, you're the extremist out of those three. I'm people. the extremist, but that's it. That's why it's like sometimes I feel like I'm living in the twilight zone. You know, I'm saying she shouldn't be stoned to death, and I'm and then they just cut me out. And I just thought, you know, there's a woman's life at stake, and they don't even have the decency to let me speak for five minutes. I mean, I'm getting emotional just thinking mm. about it now. Uh, and also the fact that um, you know, the, the, and their topic was. Should there be stone? Should stoning be condemned? I what? mean, <laughs> what? I know. Should stoning be condemned? But, but Maren, why? Why is that the case? So it's you know, there's there's many reasons for it. There is this idea that criticizing is akin to bigotry and attack of Muslims, and I think how offensive. If I, you know, I'm offended on behalf of the Muslim community because. You know, you think that this is them, that they're barbarians, you know. You can't criticize it because they would get so hurt and offended and they'd chop someone's head off. Most people don't do that, you know. So there's there's that. Uh, there's also um, the fact that, you know, they, they think, and this is the way they think, is that because it's a minority, you don't want to, that's under attack or being discriminated against, you don't want to add to that. But, you know, we're all adults, you know. We have discussions in our families all the time. Yeah, well, there's a lot of screaming and shouting, mm -hmm. or you just try not to mention things to survive the ordeal. But, um, you know, people are adults. They're not as sensitive as the media or government thinks mm -hmm. that they are, you know. So that's another area of it. The other thing is, you know, we live in an age of identity politics and cultural relativism. So, you know, this is their culture. You know, we're more civilized. We can have uh, a chat about Jesus and laugh when he's wearing nappies but they, they they just they go insane you know and that's such a racist view of people who are considered Muslims because first of all not everybody's a Muslim they, we have different beliefs in all these societies including lots of atheism criticizing religion is a very strong tradition in a place like Iran for example mm. you know we have many many jokes about Islam I mean it's funny one of my friends um, he, when he came here as a refugee he went to an English language class yeah so the teacher English teacher was like let's now all say a joke about our countries <laughs> that we have for in our country so we can share it so my friend was like oh we have a really good joke about Muhammad and she was like <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no 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 you can't <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because we do have jokes like that. Yeah. All th we joke about mullahs, we joke about Muhammad, we joke yeah. about Islam, you know. And here it's like, you know, we become these people who cannot do jokes. It's but the problem there, Mariam, surely, is that if, if I was to go on stage as a comedian yeah. and do a joke about Jesus, yeah. wearing a nappy, as you say, yeah. I don't have any reason to fear for my life. Yeah. Whereas sure. if you make a joke about Muhammad, you probably might. Sure. Right? Yeah, and that's the point. And I think when you fear for your life, that's when you need to make that joke because that's when it counts. You're up, mate. You know, I, I think that's exactly when you need to do it. And yeah. that's the whole ex the idea of the ex Muslim movement is that yeah. poking fun at religion, mm. I think, is hugely important. There's this wonderful Norwegian Pakistani comedian, Shabana 
Rahman, and um, she's amazing. She's like shown her ass on stage, and she's uh, sounds great to gone, me. Gone, gone, <laughs> I'm down. Well, because that's really taboo breaking, right? Yeah. I know it yeah. might not. It might sound stupid when I'm telling of you. But no, no, no. I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. It's so taboo breaking. Yeah. And you know, there was this event she was at, and there's this uh, Mullah Karkar, his name is, or something, and he's like known as the terrorist Mullah in Norway, and everybody was like really scared of him. And she went on stage and she picked him up and she shook him around, <laughs> and everybody burst out laughing. And she says, you know, when people laugh, you break the fear, yeah. and that's exactly when you need to do it. And I yeah. think that is so key, like making, you know, making fun. And the other thing is, you know, with identity politics, it's be become such that only if you belong to that identity, yes. you're yeah. allowed to speak. But also, not even if you be belong to that identity, because you've got Muslim women like Yasmin Rahman saying something against child marriage or against gender segregation. Oh, she's an Uncle Tom. Mm. You have to be the authentic identity in order to say anything. And that means, like, if you're a Muslim, you have to be pro-Sharia, pro-the veil, pro-child marriage, pro this, pro that, then you're, you can speak about it, you know. So th the point is, though, that before this, we used to believe in, and the left was a banner carrier of this, criticizing religion, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. And also it didn't matter what your background was, you worked together for social change and justice, mm. right? So I was an anti-apartheid activist. That was the first time I became political, right? Um, I wasn't black, I wasn't South African. Now I say something, you know, I went to Nor uh, to uh, Holland, I said something about how gender segregation is like racial segregation um, in South Africa. It's, it's segregating people based on their race and this is based on their gender. It's the same thing, it's humiliating, it's dehumanizing. So on Twitter, someone said, you're an NBPOC, you have no right to talk about South Africa. And I didn't even know what that was, but it means non-black person of color. <laughs> you knew, right? Yeah, I was like, what, the f what is this? And I was like, I was like, you will not tell me what I can speak about mm. and what I can't. Yeah. And I was an activist against apartheid in South Africa. You're too young to even know what apartheid meant, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, and you, you, have, you have groups like South Hall Black Sisters. They're Asian women, but they call themselves Black Sisters because it's part of the black politics of that time. Mm. You know, that it was, uh, no matter who you were, you worked for social justice, for equality. Movements always for women's rights has all been not about me being superior to you, but me being equal to you, you know? But now it's like you're part of an identity. You want to be superior to everybody else. No one's allowed to talk about what you, you, you know, your, your politics. No one's allowed to say anything. You get too hurt, you know, you've got to use jazz hands. You can't clap anymore. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's become so absurd. And I think, you know, this is the time then you have to just break through things, you know, people are always like, don't you think you're going too far? Well, this is when you have to go too far. You know, that's how things change. If you just tiptoe around things, nothing changes, you know. And so I think, yeah, jokes on Islam. Go for it. Invite us, we'll come and <laughs> laugh really loud. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's, you know, because now people are trying to shut down those jokes, but it's like you said, because when you, jokes are essentially, especially that sort of joke, is pointing yeah. out the ridiculous. Yeah. And if, exactly. and if a beautiful joke like that essentially cuts through all the crap, it's, in many ways it's better than hour-long speeches because it's 100%. summed up in a 15-second moment that everyone goes, oh, yeah, they laugh. There's such truth in jokes as yeah. well, isn't there? Good ones. Yeah, yeah, in good ones. Yeah. And then yeah. there's no comeback because yeah. well, you just see them a lot of the time. They just get angry and they storm off or they... 
to get yeah. upset. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to me that you criticize left because you're someone from the left, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and yet, I, That's I, why I feel like it's like a stab in my back. So yeah, badly. I feel it as yeah. well. Yeah. I feel it as well with really? the left. Yeah. You feel like, like it's a stab in your back. With the far right, I, I, they're fascist to me. The Islamists, they're fascist. I would never, ever. But, you know, the left, I think they should be standing with me. We should be doing this fight together, and they've they've left us alone, you know. And there's so many of us; it doesn't matter because you know we're having an impact in so many countries, uh, and a lot of the fights against forced marriage, against honor crimes, they're all done by minority women, you know, on their own without left the, the support that they should have had. And you were speaking at a university in London a couple of years yeah. ago uh, about some of these issues, and you had people come in and protest, yeah. and then the <laughs> feminist society. And the LGBTQ plus A whatever yeah, 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 letters yeah. there are, yeah. they both came out in support of the Islamists who yeah. were challenging yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing because these guys were so threatening, and they, uh, you know, they waited till my talk started, then they kind of fell into the room, and they kept like I was talking, and they kept walking past me and hitting my notes, and I just could think. Everybody said I looked really calm, but I was just thinking. I'm going to just, even if I have to just read my speech, I'm not letting them stop my speech. Mm. Because if they do, that's the end of it. You know, then you can't go anywhere after that. And actually, I haven't been invited to university for so long because they, they succeeded because people are so afraid of, of conflict. Um, so the, the video footage is there where they actually, like one of them um, did this to one of our uh, activists. And you can't see him do this, but you see um, one of our other activists crying because she is a Libyan who was abducted by the Islamists for three days and she thought they were going to kill her. And him doing this made her remember that. So you just see her going like this. And then another time he went out of the room and he was like, boom, you know, like just threatening stuff like that. And the video is very clear that they were just so threatening and aggressive, mm. right? And then imagine, like, yeah, it just made me, I just felt like, ow, you know, that hurts. Mm. That hurts. These guys, I don't expect anything better from them, you know. And But but that is like, how can you be a feminist and not stand with another feminist, you know? And to defend the most, I mean, he eventually had to resign because he, um, they found all these homophobic tweets about him, the president of that uh, Islamic society. And, and and still the LGBTQ plus society didn't say anything or didn't retract their thing. They didn't apologize. And the university, they contacted me 30 times not to apologize, but to tell me to remove the video. And I said, I'm not removing the video. That's the only evidence I have, um, you know, about what happened, you know. And I thought, look at them. They don't even have the decency to say, I'm sorry this happened to you. Because we're, we're like, you know, when you dehumanize the other to the extent that nothing matters. I'm sure if I had been hit as well, it would have been fine. I deserved it. I provoked it. And we saw that with Charlie Hebdo as well. They killed people over a cartoon. And you actually have people saying, well, they provoked me. You know, well, Islam provokes me every day. I hate it. I don't come chopping off your head or, t or killing you. So obviously there are other ways of dealing with these issues, you know. Uh, but it's, they've normalized it so much that it is, um, you know, we are seen. I mean, it's amazing. I go somewhere and they're like the controversial Mariam Namazi. <laughs> and yesterday they had a, an Islamist who says that people like me should be killed. But that's not controversial. Yeah. How, how did, what happened? You know, it's, it baffles me, honestly. Well, that is a question that I think baffles everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, 
it's been uh, no. Unfortunately, I was going to say unfortunately, it's been a wonderful interview. It's been a wonderful interview, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank uh, you so much so, for having well, me. Well, we have Brilliant. one more question for you, actually. Uh, and the question that we always finish up with is: What is the one thing that we that we are not talking about that we really should be talking about mm. as a society? Mm. I think is um, seeing how the Islamists that everybody talks about in some ways, like. Um, uh, is one and the same with the white nationalists and the white supremacists. I think groups like Britain First, EDL, the National Front uh, in France, for example, they're very much the same political movement as the Islamists. And it would help the left, I think. That's what I'm coming from. The left, if they see how dangerous white nationalists are, why can't they see that the Islamists are from that same movement? And then it would make them, maybe something would click in their fossilized, rotted brains of multiculturalism and identity politics. What a great way to finish an interview. <laughs> what a but, powerful uh, image. No, that's great. Uh, Mariam, if people want to follow you uh, and your work, uh, are you on Twitter? Yeah, sure. Mariam Namazi is my Twitter handle. That's so funny. I hate saying that. <laughs> I've got a website, mariamnamazi.com, but also, of course, the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain and One Law for All. Uh, you can see they've got Twitter handles as well and uh, on social media. We'll make sure yeah. to tag them all in. Great. Thank you very much for watching. As always, we will be back in a week's uh, time from now. Follow us on all the social media at TriggerPod. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button next to the subscribe button. I always forget something. Oh, yeah, come and see my show in Edinburgh. It feels a bit weird after this interview saying that, but um, called All Well That Ends Well about free speech. You're going to uh, do Islam jokes? And uh, if he doesn't, boo him. <laughs> <laughs> you have my permission. Boo well, him and get your ass out if necessary. I either get, boo- I either get booed uh, or, I, or, I, or I anger a lot of people who are going to come and chop my head off. That's a nice choice. What a great choice. But you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the most important thing. Well, I get fat shamed, mate, so there we go. Oh, We've fantastic. all got across the bear, as it were. <laughs> all right. Um, um, yeah. Uh, leave, an, leave us an iTunes review. Uh, if you enjoy it, spread the word, retweet. That would be lovely. I'm doing a show here in, at the Bill Murray in August. I'll have details on my Twitter and whatever else. And um, thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Yep. Bye-bye. Some more comments about Francis being fat, please. All right. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.